let's see here. Get this thing running. Um, tonight, tonight we're going to talk about American exceptionalism. Now, this is an idea in the myth of the Ameri modern American mind series, things that sort of baffle us and confuse us about the world. I think probably American exceptionalism is one of the most deranging influences upon our thinking. It prevents us from being able to see or understand the whole rest of the world because, of course, we think we are the whole rest of the world. Um, one, of the unex yeah. one of the unexceptional things about America is the exceptionalist belief. The, the, the greatest example of this is probably China, who for a millennia, more than a millennia, for over a thousand years, referred to itself as the Middle Kingdom, by which they meant the middle of the universe. Everything revolved around China. If you weren't within the borders of China but were close by, you were sort of little brothers. If you were farther out than that, you were rats. You know, it was, and everything was the Middle Kingdom. I mean, we are the center of the world. Um, American exceptionalism, a simple concept in, in theory, it's the idea that America is a unique country, that we're not subject to the same forces of history and government and politics as all the other countries have ever known. We have a peculiar destiny. We have been chosen either by fate or chance or God for a special role in the world and an appointed destiny in time. And so that concept that we are exceptional, we are unlike the rest of the world, and unlike the world that's been in history, again, completely baffles us. And just a few examples to start with, and then we'll go on where this comes from. Um, but sort of if we go on the grand scale, uh, Marco Rubio for the Republicans just announced his presidential campaign, and his slogan is, A New American Century. Because the 20th century was the American century, and then the next century is also going to be the American century. So all the centuries is ours. None of the centuries for anybody else. Right? This, this is, you know, it, it is funny on the one hand. On the other hand, he's a presidential candidate who's saying that, you know, I, I do believe people in China would be a bit surprised to learn that all the centuries are ours, as would everybody in every other country in the world. Um, every American president basically for decades has proclaimed the American exceptionalist ideal. Uh, Obama specifically said it. George Bush said it repeatedly. Clinton said it before that. I mean, this idea at the highest level of our politics is ingrained. We are unlike the rest of the countries in the world. We're unique and generally uniquely good or at least uniquely benign. Uh, on a less elevated plane, um, if you look at the 100 greatest movies ever made, the American Film Institute says the 100 best movies ever made in the world, 100 of them were made in America. <laughs> Which is pretty damn impressive. You gotta think, we're pretty good because we make all of the best movies. Went to the Internet Movie Database, looked up their top 100 films, 100 of them are American. So look, everybody just agrees. 
the Hollywood Reporter, which is sort of a uh, big media magazine, surveyed actors, actresses, movie directors, studio heads, uh, and only 98 of the top 100 <laughs> were made in America. The exceptions were Seven Samurai, made, we don't know where, uh, and Amelie, made in some old European country. Um, now, Entertainment Weekly has their top 100 films, and they specifically said that many foreign films had been shamefully left off of other top 100 lists. So I thought, jackpot, here we go. So only 87 of the top 100 films in a list that specifically says foreign films had been left off other lists did they recognize. So 13 uh, out of 100 could actually qualify to be, you know, top 100. So it's at every level. It's, it's at the highest levels of sort of political thought and influence in the way we look at the world. And it's also at this very sort of cultural level, where we look at the world and we say, where are the best films here? Who writes the best books? We do. Um, who, who has, by the way, if, you, if you're in the a National Football League and you win the Super Bowl, you're world champions. <laughs> Nobody else in the world plays the game. <laughs> right? But we call it world champions. The NBA championship, world champions. The World Series. Actually, other people in the world do play baseball and basketball, but who cares about them? They don't count because ours is the world championship. Yours is not. Ours is. So again, it, it, it straddles all levels of society and influences our minds in, in unbelievable ways, it's both absurd sort of and small. But, but by the way, this is important. To, to, to look at a list of top movies and not recognize that other countries are capable of making quality films, it, it really distorts your view and understanding of, of the world. I mean, it just is totally mistaken and, and wrong and limiting. And, and blind, blinds us. One last example is, of course, America's um, love of monolingualism. You can't make us learn a foreign language. We won't do it. So I did a little bit of research. And um, as far as I can tell, none of our top ambassadors to any country speak the language of that country, <laughs> except Great Britain. <laughs> and even that is questionable, I think. Uh, embarrassingly, even countries like Mexico Right? We apparently don't have any ambassadors who speak Spanish. I mean, and, and the, it, it seems trivial, and there's a lot of countries and a lot of ambassadors, so it's not that every ambassador should speak the language of every country they go to, but some ambassador should. And when you think about a country like China, who places a great emphasis on speaking their language, you would think our Chinese ambassador would speak Chinese. No. Now, essentially, every ambassador to the United States speaks English. But we see no reason to reciprocate this, because English matters. All your other languages, dirt, right? And, but as many, many people have pointed out throughout history, if the treaty or the trade agreement is negotiated in somebody else's language and you don't understand it, you lose. The history of this is perfectly clear. Um, and, and the fact that we are generally at a huge linguistic disadvantage shows up again and again and again. Um, so this is one of the things that's important to think about. So, so where does this come from? So it's a simple idea. We're exceptional, you're unique, we're uniquely important, we have a chosen destiny. Um, we're not subject to the rules of history. 
Well, I gave you this very long quote on the back of your flyer. I sort of, it, it, it's longish, but it's unbelievably pointed. This is from Mather, Cotton Mather, um, from the Magnalia Christi Americana, a book I cannot unrecommend enough. It's about six, it's about, it's about 600 pages long, and it's brutal. But if you want to understand America, you really need to understand Cotton Mather. He was right there at the inception. I mean, he's before there is a United States. But so many of the things he looked at, he's the guy that brought us the Salem witch trials. So, you know, he's a good, good person. Um, so much of his, so many of his writings echo the main threads that come down to us, you know, 300 years later. It's amazing. So I just want to read a few selections from this. And the whole point of this book is to give a history of America so that future generations understand what's going on, which is pretty clear here. So it has deservedly, it, it hath been deservedly esteemed one of the great wonderful works of God in this last age that the Lord stirred up the spirits of so many thousands of his servants to leave the pleasant land of England, the land of their nativity, and to transport themselves and families over the ocean sea into a desert land in America, at a distance of a thousand leagues from their own country, and this merely on account of pure and undefiled religion. Number one, we are the chosen people of God. We packed up, crossed an ocean, Settled in a desert. This may be familiar to anybody who's read the Old Testament. Um, this, is, this is who we are. This is who settled America. We're a unique people. Um, not knowing how they should have their daily bread, but trusting in God for that in the way of seeking first the kingdom of God and the righteousness thereof. And that the Lord was pleased to grant such a gracious presence of his with them and such a blessing upon their undertakings that within a few years a wilderness was subdued before them, so many colonies planted, towns erected, and churches settled wherein the true living God in Christ Jesus is worshipped and served in place. Time out of mind had been nothing but heathenism, idolatry, and devil worship. That by the be, be the Native Americans uh, is, what, is what he means by that. But notice... The chosen people come to a land, follow the right God in the right way, in the right churches, and we are blessed. This is, this is, the, this is the idea. We're a select people. We come, basically, it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Um, and surely this work, and of this time it shall be said, what hath God wrought? And this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. It's not our doing. We don't make America great. America just is great. You have to keep this in mind. It's the, America is, by its nature, either in God or other impersonal forces, we'll see this, is simply great. We, we just can't help itself. Um, England, the first generation of our fathers that began this plantation of New England, most of them in their middle age and many of them in their declining years, who after they had served the will of God in laying the foundations of many generations and given example of true and reformed religion, the faith and order of the gospel, according to their best lights from the word of God, they are now gathered under their fathers. The first generation, having done everything right, which is why we're so blessed, is now dead. They're gone. The second generation, uh, either such as overcome their parents very young or were born in this country, and these have had the managing of the public affairs for many years, but are apparently passing away as their fathers before them. 
the second generation is passing. The third generation, who are grown up um, and begin to stand thick upon the stage of action at this day, and these were all born in the country and may call New England their native land. Now in respect of what the Lord hath done for these generations, succeeding one another, we have abundant, ca abundant cause of thanksgiving to the Lord our God, who has so increased and blessed his people that from day of small things he has brought us to be what we are now. Next, second paragraph. Skip that little section. For if we look on the dark side, the humane side of this work, there is much humane weakness and imperfection hath appeared in all that hath been done by man as was acknowledged by our fathers before us. Neither was New England ever without some fatherly chastisement from God, eschewing that he is not fond of this formalities of any person upon earth, but expects the realities of practical godliness according to our profession and engagement unto him. Much more may we, the children of such fathers, lament our gradual degeneracy. Now this is important. This comes up again and again. We are the degenerate heirs of a once perfect land of God. Much more may we children of such fathers lament our gradual degeneracy from that life and power of godliness that was in them and the many provoking evils that are amongst us, which has moved our God severely to witness against us more than in our first times by his lesser judgment going before. We made small errors before and he chastised us, but now in his greater judgment following after, after he has shot his warning pieces first but his murdering pieces, the guns that kill, have come after them in so much in these calamitous times. The changes of wars of Europe have had such a malignant influence upon us in America that we are at this day greatly diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. It's the first two paragraphs. And the point of this book is to instruct generations to come about how things were done right in the time of his grandfather. It has biographies, church histories, church rules, founding documents, speeches. Believe me, it's really long. Uh, it was a bestseller of sorts. It went through many editions. Um, but here's basically everything. We're a chosen country. We're a uniquely chosen people. Our power is not from our doing, but is granted unto us as long as we remain moral and upright, and we worship the correct church in the correct way. Otherwise, calamity will fall upon us. This is all very Old Testament. And calamity particularly falls upon us when we get entangled with foreigners. We've left them. They're impure. They're damaging. They're bringing us low. This is American exceptionalism in its purest form, and we still believe it today. When we do things correctly, then the world is good and right and just. When we don't, we will be smited. When our institutions are right, everything is good. When our institutions are wrong, we're in the wrong church. If you don't believe in church, you have the wrong institution of government, structured the wrong way, everything is bad. Foreigners, bad, malignant influence. Now, if you turn over, this comes in a number of amazing forms. One form, not the least important of which, um, is we are not within the rules of history. Other countries are in the rule of history. We are in the bounds of a special destiny. And this seems incredible, 
But it's true, concepts like manifest destiny, concepts like uh, an American century or another American century. It's nothing to do with a historical conception of the world. In fact, this is one reason I would argue Americans are so totally ignorant of world history, is because we just don't think history matters. Most other countries have patterned themselves either on their own histories or on the histories of like the Roman or Greek Empire, the Chinese Empire was always looking back to their pasts. Because they said, look, this is the history we either want to capture it or recreate it in our time. In America, there is no history. We're the fulfillment of a sort of vague biblical prophecy that's ahistorical in itself. And that seems extreme and crazy, but in the 1990s, there's a best-selling book by Francis Fukuyama, who was a, a, a researcher at the Rand Corporation called The End of History and the Last Man which made specifically this argument, and I will quote, recent events compel us to raise anew. From the beginning, the most serious and systematic attempt to write universal histories saw the central issue in history as the development of freedom. History was not a blind concatenation of events, but a meaningful whole in which human ideas concerning the nature of just political and social order developed and played themselves out. And if we are now at a point where we cannot imagine a world substantially different from our own, in which there is no apparent or obvious way in which the future will represent a fundamental improvement over our current order, then we must also take into consideration the possibility that history itself might be at an end. <laughs> that was a bestseller. This guy's a serious person. I mean, he was a, he's a thinker at a major American research institution and was a, a huge bestseller. We've reached, why did we reach the end of history? Because the perfect form of government has been achieved, which is just coincidentally, American liberal democracy. <laughs> and the perfect system of economics has been achieved, which just coincidentally is American laissez-faire capitalism. What the rest of time will consist of is other countries realizing that they need to join us in this sort of eternal now of perfect human existence. That is the United States of America. <laughs> you well, yeah, after they stop laughing, I think that's right. Uh, 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 but but th this, no, I mean, like I said, this, this was taken, is taken seriously. Not was, is, is, is a serious, but, but few people have just had the guts to come out and just say, look, history is over. We know the end of history, it's us. It's always been us. You all out there, the rest of the world is just needs to catch up. So it's a remarkably clear statement of what Mather is talking about. Another version of this you get is, is, is the, the notion of the greatness of America uh, and of our, of our founding fathers. And where our founding fathers exist in greatness is shifts around depending, right? Now notice in most countries you get history. In America, you get the date of the utopia and then the fall, right? America was a utopia at some point, and that shifts around, and then we've fallen, just like Mather is writing about. So uh, who, who wrote the, the greatest generation, right? The, think about what that means, the greatest generation. It means the best Americans who will ever live, lived during World War II, and bequeathed us a perfect America, the greatest possible America. And 
All we can do is maintain it. That's why history has ended. Or if anything goes wrong, just like Mather tells us, it's our fault. We have strayed from the true path of our forefathers, the greatest generation, who were either Mather's grandparents or the people who fought World War II. It's confusing because it's a moving target. You never know. But this notion that we're somehow a fallen utopia, again, it extracts us from history. Um, a trivial but, I think, significant example is if you've ever seen a world map in the United States, the U.S. is almost invariably right in the middle. And the way you achieve this is by cutting Russia and Asia in half on each end of the map. <laughs> if you move the map to the left or right, so America is either on the left or on the right, the edge is right through the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I mean, you sort of like the Andaman Islands get split up. But okay, well, hey, we can take that, right? The Andaman Islands would want that, you know, shifted one way or the other. But no, America's in the middle. Our special destiny says that is where we belong. We're unique, uniquely great. Um, there is a tendency, however, to see this as some sort of purview um, of, of you know, conservatives or of guys with mullets drinking beer and wearing American flag t-shirts and going, we're number one, America's number one. Right, that sort of jingoism. But it, it's, again, it's throughout all of society. Um, one of my favorite examples, if we go uh, sort of more liberal example, is um, at the bottom, every time the, the Nobel Prize for Literature gets announced, major American papers always report, we didn't win. Some person we've never heard of, foreigner, <laughs> won the prize. So when, um, uh, yeah, when Alice Munro, a Canadian of all godforsaken things, won last year, the announcement, this is the quote from the New York Times, not, not you know, a left-wing radical publication. The announcement continues a losing streak for American writers who have been passed over for 20 years. The last American to win the prize was Toni Morrison in 1993. Merita Hüller won the uh, 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 Nobel Prize for Literature a couple years ago, and actually several magazines, like New York Times, Time Magazine, said, who? Why is this person one? We don't know who they are. Who is she? Romanian-born German. And you go, that's the reporting? Somebody won a Nobel Prize. It wasn't us. And then the article talks about how we didn't win the prize. <laughs> So you'd think that the province of you know, liberalism and outward looking and, and cosmopolitanism would be like the literary class who cares who wins a Nobel Prize in literature. But it turns out in America that's not true. We are equally narrow. Like, why, why didn't we win? Until we win. And then when we win, we'll say, well, it's about damn time. And then the following year, we'll say, well, we didn't win this year. Because it's our unique destiny. Because we have a hundred of the hundred best films, we obviously have a hundred of the hundred best writers. And a hundred of the hundred best everything must be America. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, but I mean, I, I'm not making that up. There it is. Uh, and, you, and you see this influence in other ways as well. Um, again, the notion that we are fallen from utopia. So people, in the, you get this all the time. This is sort of, if you go back to the left, you go, oh, on the left, people, 
There's poverty in America. Unbelievable. Wealthiest country in the world. How can there be poverty here? Something is wrong. The 1%, the government, the ripoffs, the politicians, the capitalists, somebody. In world history, there's never been a country without poverty. The US poverty rate is almost exactly the same as France, probably lower. If you adjust for demographics, we have the same poverty rate as the Netherlands. Now, poverty's bad. Let's get rid of poverty. Let's fight poverty. But that there's some unique error in the American system because we have poverty only means we're like every other culture in the history of the world. And that's what drives us crazy. Those other cultures, India has poverty, they have starving people. That's what they do, they produce them, they make them, it's their special product. But in America, it is offensive. Something is wrong in utopia that there are poor people. And it's hard for us to get around our minds around that we don't live in a failed utopia. <clears throat> right? It wasn't a utopia in the 1950s. People say it was. You know, other than the Jim Crow laws, the lynchings, the segregation, the Korean War, the Cold War, nuclear threats. You know, uh, other than that, everything was great. The 60s, political assassinations, civil rights riots, the 70s, I don't think anybody's voting from the 70s. You know, you, you just look around, well, like, 40s? World War II, really, that was the best of times? That's, that's sort of an incredibly bloody, well, sure, everybody else is dying, but look what it did for us. It's sort of like a vampiric view of history, right? But it's very American-centric. When the Iraq War started, we said, well, we need another war. That'll help the country out. And we thought that because World War II did help us out. But, that, again, sort of vampiric way. Yes, all of our competitors blew themselves up and gave us all their money. That helps. I don't know if we should root for that, right? It's a very US-centric view to say, oh, that would be great if that happened again. Now, we didn't cause that. It wasn't our fault. We were just, in fact, we didn't want to get involved at all because we listened to Mather. Don't get involved in Europe. You know, so we said, no, don't get involved in Europe. And then finally, we got involved in Europe. And it worked out really well um, for us, not for other people, right? But, it, but as a US version of history, we were like, World War II, that was great. That was so fun. Let's do it again. Other countries are a little more torn about that. The Czechs, for instance, ooh, the Poles have a lot of reservations. The Germans, they don't like to talk about it. The Russians, ooh, lost you know, a few people. Um, and, and, but for us, we're like, oh, that's a big win. Another example I like, same idea today, if you watch the news, which I never recommend, um, they're always talking about, oh, you know, those, those terrible people who are ISIS, you know, they've got, the, they've got the oil refineries, right? And so we blow up the oil refineries. These were not their oil refineries. ISIS did not build an oil refinery. They stole it from somebody. And then we blew it up. So if someone steals your car and the police go and blow it up and say, we found your car and blew it up, do you say, thanks, police? Or do you go, hey, why'd you blow my car up? But for us, we're like, hey, we got the oil refinery. Isn't that great? If I'm in Syria, I think, well, that sucks. We don't have a lot of those, and they're expensive, and you just blew it up. Right? And that, the fact that we can't, we have a hard time seeing that, of getting our minds around how other people might respond to our actions is is. is part of the problem of American exceptionalism. An extreme example, 
On this one, I'm not making up again. You know, we sort of signed this agreement with the uh, uh, Iranians, or at least we have a framework for an agreement on a nuclear deal with Iran. Um, and, and what's curious about this is you can read a lot, because I did. I went through probably 50 different articles on this agreement. Many of the articles actually don't really mention Iran. The tenor of the reporting is the U.S. and Iran have struck a nuclear deal. The Republicans are really pissed off. And then it talks about American domestic politics. That, that was about half to three-quarters of the article. So Iran got a passing mention, and then it was back to America. Um, here's two, um, just excerpts. Uh, that I got, um, just our uh, representative. The debate around the nuclear negotiations with Iran tend to focus on one of two issues. Are the terms of the deal good enough, and can Iran be made to stick to its end of the bargain? See, now it's nice to actually mention Iran. I thought that's good. Those are both significant issues, but there's another question hanging over the viability of any Iran deal, one that proponents of the talks have not paid attention to. Will U.S. be willing to hold Iran to account? Now, the interesting thing is that's not a terrible question, but the interesting thing is this is not a deal, a contract, a framework between the United States and Iran. It's the security, UN Security Council, China, Russia, Great Britain, um, and uh, Germany, and the EU representation, rep, rep, representative. So there's actually seven parties plus Iran to this agreement. It's not a question of the U.S. is willing to make them, like, hold them to account. How about Russia and China? Do they matter? Germany, the, e, the entire EU is on this deal. You can find almost no mention of the other partners in any of the material you read. Because we know Russia and China are small, insignificant countries that don't matter. Much less the EU. Much less Germany. Why the hell is Germany negotiating? We don't know idea, so we won't mention them. Uh, the best example I, I found of this uh, was from foreign policy, by the way. So foreign policy, great. You would think they would understand foreign policy. Uh, okay, I admit I thought this framework was going to suck. Actually, it's not bad. My main concern all along was that the P5 plus 1 countries, technically the E3, EU plus 3, congratulations if you know the difference, were focused on breakup. He actually says, well, there's all these other parties, but who the hell knows who they are. doesn't name them just passes over. Half the population of the world is signed on this deal. But we'll just pass them over because that's not what matters. And then he goes on. Still, the details are pretty interesting. The big ticket item for US national security community. That, that's all that matters. The big ticket item for us is. I'm not even, I don't even know who the other parties are because I can't figure out what all these numbers refer to. Too confusing. <coughs> Plus, I don't want to talk about them. Why would China sign this agreement? Why would Russia sign this agreement? Why does Europe want to sign this agreement? Why is Germany there separate from Europe? Why does Iran want to sign this agreement? See, none of you can read, I, and I tried, I read in the New York Times, Atlantic, all over the place. Plus, good luck finding out what the actual content of the deal is, or the framework of the deal. Basically, no one talks about that either, because it doesn't matter. It's about us. Everything about this deal is about us. 
So I went and I looked at other press. I read uh, Die Zeit, uh, Der Spiegel, uh, Le Monde, um, some Farsi language newspapers from Iran. Those are hilarious, by the way, because uh, they're, they're voices of the government. So they have a very interesting take. And all of them at least felt they should mention that what the Chinese are negotiating for is different from what the Ch Russians are negotiating for, which is different from what the Europeans want, and that it's the aligning of all of these different goals that has brought Iran and the United States together to make this deal possible. And you almost can't find that in the American press. I mean, it's just almost not there, which means if you're reading the American, even like foreign policy, sort of theoretically serious stuff, you have no possibility of understanding what's going on. It's, it's just impossible because you've cut out, again, half the world's Europe, China, and Russia. That's a lot of people, a lot of power, a lot of significance. Plus, Iran, you should really mention Iran, right? It just seems that they should get some mention of why, why they're doing this, what's going on. Uh, but, but we're not going to get that. And so this is, this is where this brings us. This funny passage from Mather, like I said, he, he's always great on this material. It sounds weird to say, well, we're this chosen country. We did that, that it's about us and God. It's not about us and anybody else. It's not about power. It's not about money. It's about the inherent greatness of the United States. But when you look at it in practice, it gets a little disturbing, right? When, we, when our government officials are out there for good or ill trying to hammer out a significant agreement, by the way, for years this has been going on. People keep talking about this as an Obama administration achievement. These negotiations have been going on before he was elected. This has been, been you know, this, is, this has been, I think, 12 or 15 years when the original talk started getting underway about all this. I mean, this goes way back. The formal agreements, I think this is year eight of the formal negotiations. So it, it's been a long run. But forget all that, because we know it's about Obama. And if Obama goes out of office, it'll be about the next president. And then think, now that we have the presidential elections coming up, they, they, they tend to help clarify certain things. What will we ask? Think, what would Cotton Mather want to know about a leader? And that's what we want to know about a leader. Are they a good person? That's the question. Are they the right kind of person? If they are, then everything from that naturally follows. If they aren't, you will fall from grace with God. Even if you don't believe in God, with the forces of history, will be, will be corrupted by a corrupt leader. Um, this is crazy, by the way. Uh, it, it turns out that who you elect's personality and personal traits are often not as important as, for instance, their political support, their uh, political ideals, the kinds of programs that they want to inst institute when they get into office, where they'll be able to get those programs passed. These kinds of things really matter. But this isn't what we're going to hear about. We're going to hear about in fourth grade, that person beat up somebody on the playground. Do you want that kind of person as president? Well, certainly not. We don't want a woman as president because that's the wrong kind of man. <laughs> right? We know this. That's just, that can't be. 
That can't be right. She can't be the right kind of person. And they're going to see ads, I guarantee it, that are, that are going to be against Hillary, where they're going to say things like, you know, you know, the Russians invade Cuba. Are you going to, who do you want to be there in the middle of the night? Because you only invade in the middle of the night. Uh, when the phone rings, and it's not going to be, you know, and then they'll show a picture of Hillary when she was 12. <laughs> right? And that and that'll be, that will say, well, we know we don't want a 12-year-old girl in the White House, which... <laughs> is not unreasonable, but is not potentially fairly representative. What we won't talk about almost at all is policy. So you think back, uh, if you're interested in, in, in progressive politics, you can look back and you say probably our two most progressive presidents were the Roosevelt one and Roosevelt two. There are certainly two of them. Scions of wealth incredibly well-educated, not men of the people in theory in any way, shape, or form. One, a blatant, absolute, jingoistic imperialist. You know, if you look at their personal biography, you would say, well, this is absolutely not the kind of person who's ever going to pass any sort of reform that would help the regular person. Right? That they're the wrong kind of people. And so this is why, you know, when, when Bill Clinton ran, again, he, he always portrayed himself as sort of this ignorant country bumpkin. <laughs> because he's just a simple guy from Hope, Arkansas, and that's what we like. Well, he's a, he's a person like us. He's a decent, sound, reasonable human being. Right? This turned out, of course, not to be true. But can you be a great president and a great leader and be totally immoral? Answer is yes. History is perfectly clear on this. <laughs> it is. It really is. There's no correlation between being moral and upstanding and being a good politician. In fact, it might be a low negative correlation. But that's not what we're interested in. We want an upright, decent, righteous person who will return America to its rightful glory. And depending on which party you're in, you either believe that is achieved through right people doing good acts, or you believe it is through good institutions doing good things. This is the difference in whether you believe from Mather in the church institution, you have to have the right church, or you believe in the people side of it, our right forefathers. And, and you can go on and read in this book, and, it's, and it's, it, you can just translate it into modern times. Money corrupts politics because it sways our politicians. Yes, uniquely American. That's never happened before. <laughs> it's hard to believe that this could be, in fact, true. Wow. Even in America, people are aghast at this. Politicians are corrupt. Get out of here. <laughs> I mean, it's just, how that people can read history of the world and go, corrupt politicians, never imagined that. You, you go, right, yes, absolutely. This is the history of the entire world. And America, shockingly to us, is no exception. So that's sort of, you know, on the, on the grand scale of things. But again, then you work back to the small scale. Um, where in your day-to-day, -day, our day-to-day lives, we see this cont consistently, continually. 
Um, like I said, if you, if you look um, at literature, we just basically don't translate foreign literature into English because we know those foreigners don't have any literature. So what's the point? So that just narrows that down. Our theaters basically don't play foreign films. I mean, we're fortunate here because we have The Rose, which is a great resource for that. But our mainline theaters just won't do it because we know Americans don't want to see that stuff. And by and large, they don't. The statistics are pretty clear here. Uh, when the New York Times put on their web edition originally, they, they asked the, one of the owners, of the, one of the family members who rarely speak in public, they asked him about this. And he said, well, one of the great things is that we can now track what people click on. And he says, what did you discover? And he said, we should never, ever publish anything about other countries. <laughs> so even our most literate theory people who are reading the New York Times, our great in theory newspaper, don't read foreign news. They're just not interested in it. They don't want to know about it. Time Magazine has a cover for Time Magazine for the United States and a different one for the rest of the world. They published two, essentially they published two editions. One for us, which tends to have Mickey Mouse on the cover every week. And one for the rest of the world, which will have you know, other people. Um, some of them foreigners, uh, shockingly enough. Um, you know, and, and that narrowing down, because we are a big country, we're a significant country, we're an important country. The reverse side of this, or another part side of this, is people who tend to criticize the United States often go, we're uniquely evil which is also hilarious, right? We're either uniquely good or we're uniquely evil. It's the same idea. If we're bad, we must be the worst country ever, <laughs> right? We, we're doing this, every awful thing in the world is because of us. Behind the financial collapse, the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was behind the financial collapse of the world. Because we know 12 guys in America must be behind it. Or 20, or 30, or however the hell many Federal Reserve people are there anyway. Nobody knows. But it must be us. Something bad happened, it must be us. People starving in Africa? Well, we should do something. Why? What the heck, you know, why? Well, because we're America. We're uniquely placed on the world stage to solve things. The fact that that doesn't work out very well quite often. Doesn't seem to bother us at all. We're completely immune to that. Somalia, we fixed that up a couple years ago. It's going great now, right? Everything's taken care of because we were there. We visited and then we left. Uh, you know, that, that sort of thinking where you go, well, did we help? We maybe tried to help, which is admirable, perhaps. Um, but did we help? that we do some good things, right? So that this is the whole problem. A, a lot of the criticism, uniquely bad, uniquely evil, something bad is going on in the world, why hasn't America done anything about it? Something good happens in the world, we're ready to claim credit for it. The, the notion that other people might be interested in other things doesn't, doesn't, it just doesn't register with us. A, it doesn't make the papers, doesn't make anything. You know, we don't hear about it. Um, so it's very odd. This is particularly peculiar and becoming increasingly strange as the world gets more interconnected. The 
estimates are that between 18 and 20% of Americans speak a second language, um, which basically means only people who just move here from a foreign country speak a foreign language. <laughs> but that is a large percentage of our population. You know, it's, it's tens of millions of people. But we're like, no, no, don't learn. Don't, you don't want to have anything to do with that. Um, there's 250,000 estimate Chinese students studying in America. That, that seems like a great thing. Well, there's also about 25,000 Americans studying in China. Why aren't there more? Right? If you adjust for population, there probably should be about 75,000 Americans studying in China. That we have 25,000 is great, but you know why, why aren't there more Americans abroad studying? So this, this, again, this, this incredible narrowing of focus because we think it's on us. We think our problems come from moral failings of individuals or institutions rather than systemic problems of you know, world politics or economic forces that might be beyond our control. See, there is no such thing as a force beyond our control because we're America. We, we should rise to every challenge. We should never fail. And here's one thing that we can learn from world history is that idea is common and always wrong. Even if America gets another century, whatever that means, at some point we're not going to get a century. At one point the Netherlands were amazingly powerful. Switzerland was a major, huge force. Sweden was a grand, sweeping empire. Russia. China, Japan, the Hittites, the Assyrians, <laughs> the Babylonians, the Cushites, right? We, we forget that history is the succession of eternal empires. And, and again, so in some ways our exceptionalism is incredibly unexceptional. Um, so why does this persist though? This is the, the kind of the question, kind of question I wanted to, to wrap up with. Because again, we are in this incredibly integrated world. We travel more than we've ever traveled. We have more access to foreign news, foreign press, foreign media than we've ever had. Different ideas from different worlds. More foreigners in the country working. Sort of a controversial issue, but, but the statistics are pretty clear. Lots of, lots of them here. Lots of smart people from all over the world in the United States doing all kinds of innovative and great things. And yet, somehow, we cannot see this. And I'm always just fascinated about why that is. And this is, I, I'll give you, besides the Matherite line, which I think is very pure, uh, that, that we just follow that perfectly, basically, um, is, is why is this impenetrable to us? Why, why can't we break that barrier and begin to look at the world and go, wow, other countries matter. Italy might be important in Iran nuclear agreement might be important for Iran. I wonder why. Right. Or, or the whole notion that, by the way, when we invaded Iraq, uh, many of our government officials were saying there was no evidence that the Sunnis and Shiites, Shiites in Iraq would ever resort to sectarian violence. <laughs> and nobody thought that this was preposterous, except for everybody in the Middle East. Um, <laughs> They actually, they know, they literally said that on the record, said this over and over again. People go, oh, okay. 
I mean, if the history is clear between the Sunnis and Shias, which is unfortunate history, but given the opportunity, they go at each other with hammers and tongs. This is what they, you know, they're just not friendly. Their, their, their history of cohabitation is very limited. Their history of fighting in various ways is extensive. But, but we believed it. We went, oh, okay. It seems no problem. Why would they? They must be just like us. And, and this is what I think the final problem is, really. I think we can't penetrate that because in our imaginations, as crazy as Francis Fukuyama sounds, it's just what he said. And if we are now at a point where we cannot imagine a world substantially different from our own, in which there is no apparent or obvious way in which the future will represent a fundamental improvement over our current order, then we must also take into consideration the possibility that history itself might be in an end. In a way, Fukuyama is absolutely correct. We don't seem to be able to imagine anything fundamentally different from the way we are. Oh, if we just go to Iraq and, and open some malls and they get some MTV, <laughs> they'll be just like us. Because everybody wants to be like us because we're so great. We have it so good. The notion that people might look at what we have and go, what you have is crap and we don't want anything to do with it, we think, oh, those people are insane. Because clearly, if you think what we have is not good, you're wrong. And, and we'll just give you some more MTV until you come around. <laughs> A few more malls, some more nice cars. You need nice cars, and then you'll understand everything. Right? And that failure of imagination to be able to look out in the world and say, you know, some people have things that they like a lot more than anything we have to offer, means that in a way we do live at the end of history. And that failure, um, I think, is profound and grows out of this exceptionalist ideal. We are correct. We are right. We are special. And if you don't align with that, well, you're wrong, so we'll just ignore you. If you don't come around to doing what we think is in your best interest and our best interests, well, that's not okay. So translate your problems into our language and we'll read them and see how we want to respond to them. Not in your language, we'll respond in our language. In fact, the whole notion that we don't even see that that's a problem, that we need everything translated into English as if you can represent everything clearly in English as if nothing is lost in all those translations that we force everybody to go through, is itself completely absurd. But we believe it. We behave systematically as if that's true. It never occurs to us that when you translate Persian poetry, we lose something. Um, uh, great, if, if, if you ever want to see this in, in great literary detail, translated into English, of course, um, read Dostoevsky's letters from the visit to Paris. So we went to Paris in the magical age, the city of lights, the city of painters, the glorious city of the Impressionists, the, the Belle Epoque, right? I mean, it was the great era of Paris. And he loathed it, loathed it, wrote scathing letter after scathing letter about how hideous and terrible and nasty and inhuman and oppressive and awful it was. And we re if you read this now, you just go, wow, he's insane. 
right? But he might not have just been crazy. All of the people who, if nothing else, just go, hey, United States, that's great. What you have is wonderful. We're just not interested. We, we, we can't quite, we're like, no, you have, no, it's not enough to just nod and move on over yourself. It's like, no, you have to play with us. You have to participate in our system because we're correct. And to the extent that you don't, you're wrong. A fundamental lack of imagination. Because we're never encouraged to do that. We're never, nothing in our society says, look outside of us for models. Look outside of us for human beings who are impressive. Look outside of us for the best works of art, for the best films, for the best literature. It's either here or it's been translated for us here. Last one of this, a, a friend of mine a couple years ago, he married a Turkish woman, so he now spends a lot of time in Turkey. Um, and he, he went to Turkey for the first time, and he said, wow, Turkey is better. That was just, he just, he just came back and he said, look, Turkey is better. There's so much here. It was so, he just was completely smitten with the place. He's like, I never imagined any place like that, that, that some place could just be so wonderful. He thought the people were wonderful, he thought the city was wonderful. He's a lot of time in Istanbul, a lot of time outside of Istanbul with his new in-laws. And he said, there's nothing in America that even approaches it, not even remotely. He says, there's nothing in Europe, as far as he had ever experienced, that was even remotely like this. But he, he sounded just like the, the adventurers in the ancient world. You can read letters from ambassadors and stuff. Who, you know, you know the 1760s, a French ambassador travels, you know, France is sort of astride the world, a mighty power, and he goes to Isfahan. And he wrote back, like, not coming home. <laughs> you know, eventually he did, but he's like, wow. I thought we were doing something. But we look back in history and say, yes, well, they were ignorant. You know, they, they couldn't travel. They didn't have news. They didn't have satellite coverage of the world. What's our excuse? We know there's other countries. We know there's other people living wonderful, fulfilling lives other places, but that imagination is fundamentally stymied. We really believe, I think this is true, and all, all the evidence I see supports this strongly, that we, we're doing it right, the other people are doing it wrong. And if they don't play with us, then that's their problem. And so when you look at an Iran agreement, or when you look at the announcement for a Nobel Prize for Literature, it's either us or why didn't we win? It's how does this a deal affect us domestically? Not Iran, not China or Russia or EU or Germany or Great Britain or France. No, us, 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 us. And so again, I like to give a little homework assignments. It's a sort of professional failing, but. So go look at the newspaper for a while. Look at some magazines. Look at us. See if you can find any news about a foreign country that really doesn't end up really being news about us. You know, in Syria today, here's what the United States should do. It's like what? You know, in, in wherever it is today, what is the United States going to do? Well, why do we have to? How does this affect a domestic politics? That's usually what it is. Something happens. How does this affect domestic politics? As if that's the most important part of whatever is going on in the world. So American exceptionalism is this profound, ingrained, in fact, Old Testament belief that comes to us from our very founding that 
limits and distorts our take on the world to a degree that is, is hard to imagine. In fact, amazingly hard to imagine until you start to look at it and think about it. Um, it's with us. We're not unique in the world. We're different. But history hasn't stopped, unfortunately, or fortunately. Um, other people can disagree with us in good stead and good conscience. Um, and and we, are, we are not going to have a thousand American centuries in a row. Right? Eventually, whatever it is we're doing will stop, even if we've had one. Yeah. Um, also, other countries have good writers. So when they win the Nobel Prize, we shouldn't be shocked. Anyway, American exceptionalism, thank you very much. <laughs>